Hello and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch, where we engage every square inch of God's world with God's worldview. You know, there's so much going on in our world that I could talk about, I suppose most notably the anniversary of September 11th. Um, But something happened this week that convinced me to go a different direction. Uh, Today I want to talk about the Christian perspective on depression and suicide. Uh, September is Suicide Awareness Month, and um, two days ago, I suppose, September 9th, yeah, two days ago was World Suicide Prevention Day. Uh, That alone makes it an appropriate topic to discuss, but what convinced me to pick it up was the tragic death of Jared Wilson. You may not be familiar with Jared's story. Um, He is a well-known pastor, um, but most famously known for his mental health advocacy. Perhaps nobody in the church today has been more vulnerable with their struggle with depression and suicidal thoughts, and he he even founded um, Anthem of Hope, which is a faith-based organization uh, devoted to offering hope to those battling um, depression, anxiety, uh, self-harm, and uh, suicidal thoughts. So among Christian voices, he was arguably uh, one of the most influential, if not most influential, uh, voices in this area. And then yesterday, in in the very shadows of Suicide Prevention Day, uh, the advocate himself committed suicide. Deeply tragic, and likewise, tragically common. Let's try to get our minds around what has become an overwhelming epidemic in our culture. According to the 2018 Center for Disease Control Statistics, suicide has risen nationally by an astounding 33% since the turn of the century. It is now the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. But even more troubling, when you look deeper in the numbers, Uh, For Americans ages 10 to 34, it is the second leading cause. And for Americans 35 to 45, it is the fourth leading cause. Um, It is so pervasive that when it comes to suicide, there are now really only two people, those who battle suicidal thoughts and those who love someone who's battling suicidal thoughts. Either way, it's an issue that touches us all. Um, Our culture quite literally is killing itself. Now, there are plenty of hot takes out there trying to explain this tragic development. Some blame the loneliness uh, crisis. Some blame the vanity culture of our day. Some blame the shift from uh, traditional community to social media. Uh, Some blame the rejection of transcendence and the rise of secularism that I talked about last week on the podcast. And honestly, there are there's probably truth to all of these takes. That is to say, it's probably a convergence of so many things that has led to our uh, suicidal culture. But more than explaining the cultural phenomenon, what I want to do is two things. I want to offer the Christian diagnosis of depression and anxiety and then the Christian hope uh, for the depressed and anxious. So I want to look at depression and suicide through the Christian uh, worldview, both its diagnosis and its hope. Now, first, it must be said uh, that this has not been handled well within Christianity. I think one of the major failures of the modern church is how neglected this struggle truly has been. The world has done a much better job than the church at destigmatizing and addressing this crisis. Uh, But within the church, it it still uh, bears a terrible stigma in, in so many churches. And this is especially unfitting an institution that by its very 
definition and design is intended to be a respite for the weary, a, a shelter for the struggling. So first and foremost, before this discussion, I just feel the need to say sorry. Uh, sorry that we have failed to care well for the depressed. But when you look at the Christian worldview, it actually has a very compelling understanding of this epidemic. Uh, You see, when it comes to mental health, we tend to do the same thing that I was referencing with human sexuality. We tend to oversimplify the issue. Essentially, there are three uh, major schools of thought when it comes to the issue of depression. And what we typically do is we choose one at the exclusion of the others. The three options that I see out there are, are medical, therapeutic, and spiritual. Medical is by far the most popular approach in our society where depression and anxiety is caused by a neurological imbalance, whether that be uh, genetics or situationally induced. For whatever reason, um, there's an imbalance going on and medicine should be taken to correct the imbalance. I would say therapy is probably the second most popular option. Depression and anxiety is rooted in your story. Uh, Trauma from your past is leading to your present despair, and uh, the wounds of your trauma need to be discovered and processed and healed properly. Uh, The least popular approach in our society, but probably the most popular approach in religious circles, uh, views depression through a spiritual lens. Depression and anxiety is the fruit of spiritual unhealth. And therefore, the pathway to healing is through uh, repentance and um, a commitment to religious practices. So which is it? A neurological issue, um, past trauma, or sinful consequences? Meaning, do you need a doctor, a therapist, or a pastor? Uh, The Christian answer must be yes. This is an incredibly complex struggle that necessitates an equally complex approach. The the biblical worldview sees human beings as physical creatures, meaning there are medical implications to this problem, formed by experiences in this world, meaning there are therapeutic implications, and yes, with a fallen proclivity toward sin, which would be spiritual implications. So when it comes to depression, be very suspicious of oversimplification. Well-intended people often will emphasize one of these three to the exclusion of the others, but in reality, the depressed need all three. That's not to say that all three are equally causative in your depression. Typically, uh, one is needed more than the others, but all three must be considered. Perhaps it's an inherited uh, an inherited imbalance from your family genetics and for you it's primarily going to be a medical issue perhaps you have a, a horrific history of abuse and for you it's primarily going to be a therapy issue uh, perhaps you have a besetting issue of immorality in your life like a like a drug addiction that's leading to your anxiety or depression and for you it's primarily going to be a repentance issue but always i would say the three are interconnected because the three cannot be separated within your personhood. Um, to help us better conceptualize this, I thought, I thought it'd be good to use myself as a test case. I, I think it's helpful to talk about this issue uh, with an example, and so I suppose the best one to use is my own story. I've spoken openly about my struggles with anxiety, specifically a six-month season of my life that, that felt like six years, <laughs> but a six-month season of my life where I found myself in the utter throes of crippling anxiety that would not allow me even to function. It was the most difficult season of my life, but 
and I mean this, I, I do bless God for it, not only because of the sanctification that it afforded me, uh, specifically a much-needed dose of humility, but because it allowed me uh, to empathize with the anxious and depressed in ways that I never could before. Um, unless you've been there, it's impossible to know what it's like. I used to conceive of it as, I guess, a sadness. Now I know it's not a sadness, it's emptiness. I used to see it as gloomy clouds that are always there, but now I know, no, no, it's, it's a pitch black darkness. What happened is I started having panic attacks, but I didn't know they were panic attacks. I was convinced I was dying, actually, which, of course, only added to the anxiety, which only added to the panic and that vicious cycle. But uh, being the arrogant and stubborn man that I was, um, I just faked my way through it and decided I was going to tough it out and hope I can fix myself or something. But then came October 9th, 2011, um, which was the day I could no longer fake it. It was a Sunday. And I was having panic attacks literally while I was preaching. For those of you who have suffered panic attacks, imagine that, uh, standing in a pulpit, um, having a panic attack. Um, but I faked it, and nobody could tell. But I can remember myself raising my hands to give the benediction at the end of the service and saying to myself, I will never preach a sermon again. And then that night, um, I was up all night in just one continual state of panic. I literally was afraid to fall asleep because I thought I would wake up in a psychiatric ward of a hospital or something. And finally, at about five in the morning, I gave in. Uh, I couldn't fake it. I couldn't be strong anymore. So I woke Abby up. I woke my wife up. And I said, I said, there's something wrong with me. And then I just clapped collapsed, literally and figuratively. As soon as I told the truth about what was going on inside, it was as if the floodgates of despair opened up and I was drowning underneath that flood for about six months. At its worst, it was an exhausting exercise for me to do the most basic things of life, take a shower, brush my teeth, eat, sleep. I seriously couldn't eat and sleep. I would, I would have to just force some food down, and if I could sleep for a few hours, it would be a miracle. Um, I lost interest in things I'd always loved. Um, I couldn't read. I couldn't play golf. I couldn't go fishing. Um, I, couldn't watch, I couldn't watch Kentucky sports. For those of you who know me, that's, that tells you how bad it was. A normal conversation or a normal routine trip like to the grocery store would send me into a panic attack. I couldn't, I just couldn't shut my mind off or, or even slow it down. I was just bombarded all day long with um, crazy thoughts and doubts and fears and vain imaginations and, and I guess you could call it fatalistic thinking that, that my mind would run to places that if I were to tell you, you would say, that's, that's crazy, that's not true. But to me, I was utterly convinced it was true. Um, I fear the nights the most. Uh, those of you who struggle with uh, debilitating anxiety, you know what this is like. I fear the nights because I would have to lay in bed alone with my thoughts and try to fall asleep. And when I would wake up, I would have this tiny moment of hope that maybe it was over but then I would feel the, the darkness just crawl back onto me, and I just faced another day of exhaustion, battling my anxiety. And forget about practicing my faith. I couldn't read the scriptures. I couldn't listen to a sermon. I couldn't believe promises. Uh, the most Christian thing I could do was a simple prayer like, God, please help me. 
Um, But God was utterly distant and silent. I had zero hope that I would ever have his presence again. My wife, my closest friends, they had to assure me multiple times a day that, that even the most basic truths, truths that I have proclaimed to so many people, even those truths they had to convince me were true for me. And even then, I still really, really struggled to believe them. Simply put, I I was living a nightmare. I was living hell. And for the first time, I understood what I previously could not comprehend, the plausibility of suicide. Throughout it all, I never got to the point of suicidal thoughts and certainly not a plan. But I do vividly remember one day in particular, I was working on a Lego set with one of my sons. Um, and I, I remember um, so empty and, and, and so lifeless that I couldn't even put Legos together and have a conversation with my son. And, and I, I, I vividly remember having the thought that if I had to live this way every day for the rest of my life, I don't think I could do it. So what happened to me? Again, I think my breakdown was a convergence of many things. I think my breakdown was a result, yes, of my sin. I, I wasn't living a, a secret life. I didn't have an, a hidden addiction going on, but there were still sins lurking in my heart that honestly, I didn't even know were there. Um, an ugly, unhealthy, and I would call it reckless ambition, a need for control and approval, an arrogant self-sufficiency, living my day in just complete reliance upon my own strength and gifts. Uh, Patterns like this were going on in my life. I think my breakdown was a result of physical unhealth. I wasn't exercising. I wasn't sleeping. I was um, eating terribly. I was overworking. I just wasn't taking care of my body. Um, I think my breakdown was a result of external factors. I had a toddler and an infant at home. Um, and perhaps more significantly, I was transitioning into uh, senior pastoral leadership at a larger congregation at a very young age with no experience. Uh, so just an overload of life stressors. I think my breakdown was the result of a lot of pain that I had never properly addressed. I had never dealt with my brokenness. The, 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 the past uh, traumas that were informing my present life in ways I didn't understand. I, I thought the Christian thing to do was to ignore the past and move on. And so I did a lot of hiding and pretending and even rewriting my story to make it better than it truly was. So what led to my personal uh, season of despair? I would say a lot of things. I just don't think that answer is as simple as we want to make it out to be. And likewise, I think my healing was equally complex. So that, that's the Christian diagnosis of depression and anxiety. Now, now let's discuss the Christian hope for the depressed and anxious. The reason why it's so important to view uh, depression and anxiety through the lens of complex biblical personhood is because it leads to an equally complex approach to treatment, which is so crucial. Again, I'll use myself as a test case. How did I come out of my despair? Well, first, I, I should say, Um, I'm not sure I'll ever be out of it, so to speak. It's still something that I think about nearly every day. Um, It has never seized me like it did during that season, but it does feel like it is always lurking as God's constant whisper of my weakness and frailty. 
And I think it'll always be there in some way um, so as to keep me ever humble, ever dependent upon the Lord. But how did I get to the point where I could actually function? Like I said, that answer is just as complex as what brought, um, what brought it about. We, we want there to be a simple solution to this thing, but there isn't. So I'll give you five things that I think are all sound biblical principles that the Lord used in my life to deliver me uh, from my anxiety. Uh, first, I needed a doctor. The first thing I did was see a doctor. Again, the Bible recognizes us as physical and spiritual beings, and most certainly, the former does impact the latter. You are not disembodied souls. You have a body, and it has an impact on your soul. So my doctor talked to me about my health, um, everything from exercising to my diet to taking a day off and getting a hobby, and yes, he wrote me a prescription. I understand uh, some Christians and maybe just the, I don't know, general population are uh, wary of medicine. Um, but I would just say it's notice it's it's notable that that we're only um, we're only wary of medicine in this one area. Nobody ever tells you just to pray when you get diagnosed with cancer. They tell you to pray and get medical treatment. So you can you can say whatever you want about medicine, but if you get where I was, that debate goes out the window. Um, I tell people that my doctor could have told me to eat my shoe and I would have done it if I thought it could help. I needed medicine. The, the serotonin level, the chemical that monitors my emotions and thoughts in my brain was depleted and I needed a prescription. And I took it and it helped me a lot. So I needed a doctor. Secondly, I needed a good counselor. I, I had never done serious counseling um, but again, when God brings you to the end of yourself, you'll try anything. It wasn't pleasant. Good therapy never is. But in many ways, it truly set me free. For the first time, I was forced to tell the truth, the truth of my story, my, my shame, my guilt, my sin. It showed me just how far this thing we call the gospel could truly go into these deeper areas. And it led into repentance that I didn't know was possible which is the third thing, my own repentance. By the way, if counseling doesn't end in some form of repentance but perpetually remains in the endless cycle of introspection, then ironically, it might only add to the despair. Um, my counselor helped me understand my unique story so that I could understand my own unique repentance. Not repentance for being anxious, not heaping shame on my anxiety, but repentance for that which led to my anxiety. I discovered levels of spiritual unhealth that went far beyond external actions and went down deeper into the very dispositions of my heart. Repentance over things that I didn't even realize were there, like, for instance, my insatiable need for control and clarity. So yeah, I did need to repent. Um, fourthly, I needed community. I believe this with all my heart. If I were alone in it, I would not have survived it. Community rescued me. Uh, my community was the voice of Jesus to reassure me, the rebuke of Jesus to discipline me, the tenderness of Jesus to comfort me, and at times the strong arm of Jesus to just carry me. If I was alone, I would not have survived. Um, as an aside, speaking of community, to those 
uh, not struggling with depression. This is so key to understanding the struggle. I, I see a lot of social media posts pleading with the depressed to reach out for help. And I get it. I get the sentiment behind it. And, and, and it's a good one. But the whole point of depression is that you can't. It is such a cruel condition because you know you need help and you may even want help, but you literally don't have the strength or fortitude to get help. So this is an area that requires intervention. Um, So yes, if you're having signs of depression and suicidal thoughts, reach out, but I would say even more so, look for the signs and you get those that you love the help that they need. Okay, so I need a community. Lastly, I needed to return to the simplest mundane habits of the faith. I had gotten in a bad habit of neglecting the disciplines of religion, but there is nothing like a nervous breakdown to bring you back to the basics. And also what it did is it changed the way I approached the disciplines. I didn't merely study the Bible. I I literally clung to it. I meditated upon it. I recounted it to my soul again and again. Uh, My prayer life became simpler, more childlike, more desperate. Uh, something like just sometimes just sitting in the silence and in the presence of the Lord. I found a, a new appreciation for corporate worship. Uh, Sunday mornings got me through it. Uh, being there with God's people, surrounded by the means of His grace and love, that became my lifeblood. I can remember feeling so safe in the liturgy of God's people. Something as simple as saying the Apostles' Creed was so significant for my soul. There were even times I couldn't say it. And I would just sit there and listen to God's people say it to me as if I don't have the strength to believe this right now, but I will let my community believe it for me. I will trust that what they are saying to me in this moment is truer than what my anxiety is saying to me. And so if you were to ask me what led me out of my despair, I would say it's as complex as what led me into it. And the Christian worldview offers a complex diagnosis and an equally complex hope. I want to close uh, today by quoting Jared Wilson's final tweet before he took his own life. Um, It's now a very haunting tweet uh, because, quite honestly, it's probably more of a cry for help than anything else. On the day he succumbed to his depression, uh, this is what he wrote publicly. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure suicidal thoughts. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure depression. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure PTSD. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure anxiety. But that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't offer us companionship and comfort. He always does that. And I say amen to that. It is true. Um, Loving Jesus doesn't fix your depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts. But Jesus does offer us companionship and comfort always. But I think the more important question is how. How does Jesus offer us his companionship and comfort in our depression and anxiety? I would suggest that he is found in those five things I shared. He is discovered as our companion and comfort in a doctor, in a counselor, in community, in our own repentance, and in the mundane habits of the Christian life. Thanks so much for listening. As always, I would love for you to subscribe, uh, rate, and review the podcast. It really does help others get exposed to this content. And join me next week for another episode of Every Square Inch.